0: Greetings and welcome to another episode of the AMSSM Sports MedCast. I'm your host, Dr. Devin McFadden. I'm thrilled to be joined today by Dr. Sanjay Sharma, professor of cardiology at St. George's Hospital, University of London. Today we'll be discussing the question of whether shared decision-making in athletes with cardiovascular conditions has swung too far uh, and whether we're putting athletes at risk by allowing them to participate in sports. Dr. Sharma, thank you so much for joining us today. It's a pleasure, Devin. As I said, the the topic is gonna be shared decision-making and whether the pendulum has swung too far. Can you give us a brief synopsis of the current evidence uh, that's brought this topic into question?
1: Well, the benefits of exercise on the cardiovascular system are well-established. We know that people who exercise regularly generally live between three and seven years longer than those that don't, but very occasionally a young sportsman dies suddenly during training or competition. Most deaths in such individuals are due to inherited or congenital abnormalities of the heart that can be diagnosed during life, and for which there are several therapeutic interventions that modify the natural history of disease or may even save lives. And hence, there are several incentives now to identify such young individuals. Clearly, once a diagnosis has been made in a young person, the question is, what do we do with those individuals? We know that the diseases that cause sudden death are very heterogeneous, their outcomes vary from one person to the other, and the vast majority are associated with a near normal or normal lifespan. However, given the visibility of these tragedies and the number of life years lost, as well as the impact on families, peers, and societies, the current guidelines, certainly until 2015, were very homogeneous. They were conservative. And the aim of these guidelines was to encompass all preventable deaths. And therefore, any athlete identified with any of these serious cardiac diseases, such as the cardiomyopathies, or ion channel disorders, was precluded from competitive sport. Over time, there have been a few small studies. One was a registry on implantable cardioverter defibrillators in exercising individuals who had been diagnosed and implanted with such devices. There were 372-odd individuals in this cohort that were followed up for almost four years. And in that time, the investigators showed that there were no deaths or any adverse events with the defibrillator, such as a lead fracture, and therefore they concluded that it may be safe for some people with these diseases to compete, even if they had a defibrillator A smaller study by Mike Ackerman looked specifically at people with long QT syndrome. These were very young people, aged 11 years old, 130 in total who had a slightly long QT interval and most had a positive genotype. These people were followed up for five years and in that time, there were no events in people who had a positive genotype, but a very mildly prolonged QT interval. And based on these studies, the current perspective is that we shouldn't be so homogeneous and that we should start involving the athlete in decision making prior to considering disqualification from competitive sport
0: all right so it sounds like there's some promising evidence but but limited numbers at this point in time i think you said about uh 370 and 130 in those those two studies so given the the limited although promising evidence to suggest that safe participation in competitive athletics may be possible in those with underlying cardiac disease who are managed Appropriately, of course, how do you feel about the current AHA guidelines uh, and trend towards shared decision-making in athletes to potentially make them eligible for competitive sports?
1: The current AHA guidelines were published in 2015 and they have now been followed by the European guidelines, which are just beginning to trickle out certainly we've got guidelines for the cardiomyopathies that were published uh, at the end of last year in Europe And both sets of guidelines do suggest a more liberal approach towards athletes who've been diagnosed with cardiomyopathy. The Americans have also published on ion channel diseases, particularly long QT syndrome and Brugada syndrome, and indicate a more conservative approach. Now, I welcome shared decision-making, and I will say this because the event rate in people with cardiomyopathy or long QT syndrome Varies between 0.2% and 0.8% per annum. That is to say that the vast majority of people with these disease processes will not have an event, and and if they do, and if then the number that do is going to be very small. And this is evidenced by large marathons, for example. We've got the London Marathon coming up on Sunday, and we will, I think, at the end of that marathon, there have been about 1.3 million people that have completed our marathon. And we've only ever had two deaths from hypertrophic cardiomyopathy in this 39-year time period. However, it's my guess that many more people unknowingly have competed, uh, not knowing they've had cardiomyopathy, nothing has happened to them. So these event rates suggest that most people will not die. However, my, I do have concerns. And that is, when we look at the largest sudden death series from the United States that was published by Barry Marron, that included almost 1,800 young sudden cardiac deaths, we find that the mean age of sudden death in that cohort was 17 years old. So these are adolescents that are dying. The second point is that when we look at our own study, we published on a very we published a very large study in the New England Journal of Medicine in summer last year, where we examined the outcomes of 11,000 adolescent football scholars that had been screened relatively comprehensively with an ECG and an echocardiogram. And we followed these people up over 10 years. In that time, we diagnosed 42 with serious cardiac diseases. That's uh, a prevalence of 0.28%. And over 10 years, there were eight cardiac deaths. Of these cardiac deaths, we had already diagnosed two people with hypertrophic cardiomyopathy and advised them against competition. These two young individuals competed against medical advice and died during competition. Again, both were adolescents. So what my worry is that these guidelines may be appropriate for adult athletes, usually people who have been competing for years and are aged 30 years old plus, But I am not sure whether we should be as liberal in adolescent individuals who appear to be particularly vulnerable from sudden cardiac death due to cardiomyopathies and ion channel diseases. The other thing that I should also point out is that the current guidelines suggest that most of these athletes would be at low risk based on what we know from the general population. But we mustn't muddle up apples and pears because the lay population do not do the type of physical intensity as our competitive athletes do. Our competitive athletes may exercise five to ten times more than the current lay guidelines. And therefore they subject themselves to immense metabolic stresses such as surges in adrenaline, shifts in electrolytes and dehydration, which could all be triggers for sudden cardiac death. And until we know more about the exact triggers or the type of phenotype that may be associated with a high risk in these athletic individuals specifically, we need to be a little bit more cautious than the current guidelines suggest.
0: Well, I certainly understand your your concerns, uh, especially in the the pediatric athlete, but uh, I think taking another point of view, you could also make the argument that childhood is when you're going to make habits that last for the the rest of your lifetime, Uh, and it really boils down to weighing the impact of sudden cardiac death, obviously, versus the impact of disqualifying these young athletes with, with the low incidence of sudden cardiac events that you noted earlier. So how would you answer those who suggest that the alternative is, is overly cautious and that by restricting those athletes with cardiac diseases, uh, such as long QT syndrome, uh, while well-intentioned, we may actually be causing long-term harm down the road?
1: Well, let's start by saying that I'm all for shared decision-making, and that, that's particularly the case because the instance of sudden cardiac death in sport is, lo- is very low and the event rate with people affected with the diseases we've been talking about, notably the cardiomyopathies and ion channelopathies, is low. And therefore, it's good to be honest with the athlete that their risk of dying is not as high as, as was once perceived, but also to be honest with them that the trials that have been performed to date are based on small data sets and they really are not powered to be able to answer the question precisely. That is to say that nobody with cardiomyopathy who exercises provided that they take medications will die because the malignant substrate is there whether you take medications or not. I think we've got to be very careful not to be too reassuring. We've got to tell the athlete that their risk of dying may be two or threefold greater um, if they exercised versus if they didn't. And even that figure is not particularly high, and then that athlete can make a decision about whether they want to carry on exercising or not, uh, provided that there are in place facilities to perform cardiopulmonary resuscitation, personnel and equipment uh, to allow the best possible outcome. It's also important that these athletes are treated appropriately with the with, with medications if if. Uh, that is if that's what's required in the management of these people and are given an advice about dehydration and advice against exercising in extreme climates if all that's in place then I don't see any reason why uh, we should go against shared decision-making my concern and I come back to this is the adolescent so I agree with you that lifestyle habits are adopted during adolescence and your adolescence is the time where you are probably most able, adolescence and young adulthood is when you're most able when it comes to uh, sport and competition. However, I believe that it's difficult to allow an adolescent to make a decision unilaterally. Uh, I think in this sort of situation I would certainly involve the adolescent, the parents, a club representative or the team coach and go through the pros and cons of ongoing competition. I would bring to the table the data sets that we have available and specify that the vast majority of people in the cardiomyopathy data set were grown up and very few were actually competitive athletes. So although they said these people exercised, we had 63 people in that registry that exercised but only 13 were true athletes so the numbers are very small and therefore we really don't know precisely what could happen to someone who continues to exercise i would also mention that it's clear that the adolescent population is most vulnerable particularly during competitive sport and therefore these pieces of information are very, very important for parents, the athlete, and the club. And then, and obviously, what happens after that is really up to the physician and the patient coming to some sort of agreement. But uh, I think adolescence is one thing that I'm, I am worried about. I do know, for a fact, from our own experience, that adolescents who do have cardiomyopathy, who, who do recreational types of exercise, such as gentle swimming jogging and cycling have a very good outlook so i wouldn't uh, deprive them from that type of thing but if they want to play at ncaa level or elite club level then i think i would have concerns in this particularly vulnerable age group
0: well i think that makes a lot of sense and and i like that approach of including both the athlete and the family of course uh, given uh, kind of the age and the outlook of of an adolescent athlete, but I think you brought up a, a good point there, which is these these decisions don't just affect the the patient and the family; they're wider ranging than that. They obviously affect the the teammates, potentially the athletic training staff, the school or club involved, and the physicians involved in in the athlete's care. So, with so many competing uh, considerations and interests, how do we make a true clearance decision, say, in an athlete who's set on competing, regardless of of what the evidence or the current data suggests is in their best interest?
1: Well, I think that's where autonomy is so important. And uh, both the American Heart Association and the European Society of Cardiology are respecting that athlete autonomy. And I would certainly respect it to a great point. But let me just give you two situations where I would be completely against it. If we've had an athlete who has already survived a sudden cardiac arrest, I would really be averse to allowing that person to continue to exercise. Similarly, if we've got an athlete who is showing high-risk features such as ventricular tachycardia associated with blackouts. I would be concerned. So those two groups, I think I would be twisting that athlete's arm that it's not in his best interest or in the club's best interest to continue to exercise. We've got to remember, and as you just said, that there is one thing with an ordinary individual having a cardiac arrest in in a street and not being resuscitated. That's tragic for that person's family and friends. And there's another thing when a young person who is seen as the epitome of health by society has a cardiac arrest in front of 40,000 people and cannot be resuscitated, and then it comes out that the athlete had very high-risk features and was still allowed to compete due to the stubbornness of the individual, you can see the outcry that we would face from society if we allowed this sort of thing to happen. We have situations, of course, where there are profession- adult professionals, grown-up, who can make their minds up, who have a greatly vested financial interest to continue competing because they're, they're earning a livelihood from this. And in that particular situation, of course, I have to sometimes bow down to the athlete because they tell me this is the only thing I know, this is how I make my money, and this is what I intend to continue to do. And then in that sort of situation, of course, it's very important to have a club representative about, around because it's the club that may be the employee for the athlete who then goes on to make a decision about whether that athlete should be allowed to compete for them or not.
0: Absolutely. And I, I appreciate your your aspect on that as well. And I, I agree. Professional athletics certainly takes a whole other complicating factor into this and likely adds even More reason to to consider the the athletes opinions but one final question for you and then we'll let you go Uh, we've discussed the current state of evidence as it stands what current gaps exist that need to be addressed before you feel safe stating that shared decision making should be used across the board and we can really allow athletes to make their own decisions with the information that that we currently have What specific conditions do you feel we really need to take a closer look at before opening up the doors to allow participation?
1: Okay, so the two disease processes that I've talked about quite a bit, hypertrophic cardiomyopathy and long QT syndrome, seem to be the ones where there is most evidence that such individuals may be able to compete without an adverse event. There are other conditions, one called arrhythmogenic cardiomyopathy and the other known as catecholaminergic polymorphic ventricular tachycardia. I think we're all agreed that both of these conditions can be made much worse with exercise. We know that arrhythmogenic cardiomyopathy, for example, uh, its disease course can be accelerated with ongoing exercise, which can precipitate heart failure fatal arrhythmias and even advance the need for a cardiac transplantation in the future so we all agree that those types of people should not engage in competitive sport we also know that catecholaminergic polymorphic ventricular tachycardia is a disease process that's that's facilitated by adrenaline and clearly exercise produces lots of adrenaline and there's a high risk that these types of athletes may suffer a fatality so these two conditions are sorted out. When it comes to things like hypertrophic cardiomyopathy, what do we know at the moment? Well, we know that adult hypertrophic cardiomyopathy patients, these are people aged over 25 years old who have no symptoms, no family history, and a specific variant where hypertrophy is localized around the apex. These type of people seem to do quite well, provided they do not have any exercise-induced arrhythmias. So this group of people we know a lot about. If you've got an athlete who's a grown-up, who's got an apical variant, has no symptoms, no family history, who can exercise without any rhythm disturbances, I think we know that those people can safely compete. We don't know much more about other people with hypertrophic cardiomyopathy, and I think what we need, we need to draw upon The two studies I've mentioned, these studies were small. We need to set up a multinational registry where we're actually looking at athletes who have decided to continue to compete despite these diagnoses, follow them up for many years so that these studies are actually powered to allow for an event rate of between 0.2% to 0.8%. So we'd have to study several hundred, maybe thousands, to actually see who dies and who doesn't, and then identify what it was about their phenotype that may have predisposed sudden death. Was it the amount of scarring? Was it the magnitude of hypertrophy? Was it the severity of the impaired myocardial relaxation? All of these unknown answers. We really don't know the answers to this. We are currently relying on observational studies in very small numbers, to make decisions that can have very serious consequences for a young person. So I, I would vote for a multinational uh, registry of athletes who compete uh, and have a very long follow-up to give us some idea of the outcomes and the phenotypes that are, that are actually associated with fatality. And that will allow us to create more accurate guidelines about the sort of athletes who can safely compete versus those who should definitely avoid competitive sport, but continue light recreational exercise to enjoy the benefits of physical exercise on the overall general health.
0: All right, well thank you so much Dr. Sharma for your time and expertise today. I'd also like to thank you for your advocacy for our athletes and your leadership in the continued research in this critically important field. I'd also like to thank you the listener for tuning in today. I hope you found this time as valuable as I have and will join us again next time for the next episode of the AMSSM Sports Medcast. The views expressed are those of the speakers and do not represent the official policy or position of the AMSSM, the U.S. Army, Department of Defense, or the U.S. government.